Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 33, 2 Kings chapter 22. Now last time we concluded 2 Kings 21 with the notice that a new king of Judah was now on the throne. It was a fellow named Yoshiao, Josiah. Josiah was the son of Ammon. He was the grandson of Manasseh. It's the year 641 BC. Yoshiao takes over from his father, Ammon, who was murdered by his own royal court. Barely more than 40 years was going to pass before Judah will be exiled to Babylon. Now back and forth, Judah has gone from evil kings to righteous ones and then back again. If you look at this chart, one of the reasons I love this particular chart is you see green for righteous, evil, uh, red for evil, then everything in between. And you see what happened here for Judah. It's, it looks like a barber pole. The first 49 years of Manasseh's reign makes him the worst Judah had ever known. Manasseh was a bit of an anomaly. He had periods of wicked and good leadership. Manasseh was accused by God of being even more evil than the nations that had been driven from Canaan so that Israel could inherit that land for themselves. But late in his reign, King Manasseh was arrested. He was taken in chains to the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, who was residing at that time in Babylon. And there, there the rebellious, the idolatrous Manasseh came to realize that his true God was Yehovah. That it was Yehovah who had allowed this calamity. His heart became contrite and he approached God in humble prayer asking for forgiveness, for restoration. Now it's fascinating to me that we don't read about this change in Manasseh in 2 Kings. If we leave our understanding of his reign to only reading the words of 2 Kings 21, we never learn of his repentance. It is in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 that we read about this change and that he was released, he was allowed to return to Jerusalem where he reigned generally in righteousness as a good king for the next six years until he died. I also think it is fascinating that we don't seem to have a record of the content of this prayer in our Bibles. Because it seems like it would have made an awfully good prayer model for those who have lived wicked lives but have seen the light and they wonder, will God forgive me? I want to take a short detour. I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Now I'm going to ask for all of your attention because what I'm going to tell you 
few Christians know. And it's imperative that it is exposed and it's acted upon. The reality is that there is a record of Manisha's prayer, but you won't find it in most Bibles. It was considered apocryphal material at one time by Jews, Catholics, and Protestants and was actually part of the standard Christian Bible as early as the 4th century. It was placed at the end of the book of Second Chronicles like an appendix. It remained part of the Christian Bible for 12 centuries until the 1500s AD when the rebellious German monk Martin Luther decided it ought to be removed. Let me make that clear. From the moment that there was such a thing as a New Testament, which is a little bit after 200 AD, and it was finally added to the long-existing Hebrew Bible in order to create what we would call today the Christian Bible, not only was Manesha's prayer included in it, so were all the books of the Apocrypha. Even though Martin Luther demanded that the Apocrypha was to be removed in the 1500s AD, oddly, he seemed to have a change of mind and he ordered that the prayer of Manasseh should be kept. However, the Geneva Bible continued to retain all the Apocrypha for those of you who don't know, that's the Bible that the pilgrims used, that the Puritans used. And the King James Bible did as well. In fact, Martin Luther also ordered the book of Hebrews to be removed from the New Testament. And it was. However, a few decades after his death, it was re-included in most Christian Bibles. The Apocrypha has remained part of the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church without interruption to this very day. Why did Martin Luther do this? What was his motive? It was because he considered the Apocrypha and the book of Hebrews too Jewish. His anti-Semitism is not speculation. It was infamous. It was controversial. It's well recorded by his contemporaries and by his own hand. There is no doubt that at first Luther was not a Jew hater. But as we follow the progression of his career and of his literary works, he became so. Those today who seek to defend Luther as not being anti-Jewish, always point to his earliest works. However, later, he rescinded those words. He became virulently anti-Semitic. And as far as anyone knows, he died in that condition. In 1543, Luther published a famous work called On the Jews and Their Lies. And in that work, he says that the Jews are a, and I quote, base, whoring people 
that is, no people of God, and their boast of lineage and circumcision and of the law must be counted only as filth. Luther's theology has affected far more than only the Lutheran denomination. It has impacted most of Western Protestant Christianity. Thus, the modern Bibles that most Western Christians carry around with us accept, embrace, and reflect and memorialize Luther's views on the worthlessness of Jews, the Apocrypha, the Torah, the Law, and the Old Testament in general. As a result, even though Luther commended it, the prayer of Manesha has also typically been removed from our Bibles as well. Now many of you have probably heard Bible teachers and pastors speak of this mysterious biblical silent period that comes just before the beginning of the New Testament. That is, Malachi is usually placed as the last book of the Protestant Old Testament. However, historically, on a timeline, Ezra and Nehemiah are the latest, and those books take us no further than about 400 B.C. So, this so-called silent period is the institutional Western Church saying there's this mysterious hole in our Bibles. And there is no biblical information on the time period from 400 B.C. to about 1 A.D. The four centuries that lead up to the birth of Yeshua. But as I just explained to you, that silent period is a man-made illusion first created by Martin Luther who removed the Apocrypha, which are the books that cover the biblical history of that 400 year time period that's supposedly non-existent. Later, since the 1960s, those views of what ought to be and what ought not to be in the Bible were taken a step further. When during the Jesus movement, the Old Testament began to be seen as, as so irrelevant to modern Christianity and, and to salvation efforts that it was removed altogether and many evangelicals now carry with them a so-called Bible that consists only of the New Testament. So what we see is this evolution of the Bible that has been cut down, made smaller, smaller over the centuries by a church that wanted to rid itself of as much Jewish influence as possible and to reduce the presence and relevance of the Father, the Old Testament God, in order to more completely replace Him with the Son, the New Testament God. Now I hope this little history lesson startles you. I actually kind of hope it makes you angry. What I've just told you is not my opinion. The highest levels of Hebrew and Christian scholarship acknowledge what I've just shared with you.
because it's just simply recorded historical fact that any one of you can read about if you care to do so. Now I hope this causes you to go home to research everything I just said to you in order to verify it so that you can come back and tell me just how wrong I am. <laughs> but I want to give you a word of caution. I mean this sincerely. What you find out when you do some serious digging makes what I just explained to you seem mild by comparison and it's only the tip of the iceberg. This knowledge of our faith roots that is beginning to become known among believers who care to seek it out is the basis of the so-called Hebrew Roots Movement. A movement to reform the ecclesia, the church, and bring it back to its first love, the Word. And as John in the New Testament explains, the Word is both Christ and His given Word. The Bible. The entire Bible. It is this movement's hope to try to undo much of the harm and violence that's been done to our faith by agenda-driven religious leaders and to acknowledge the prophesied rebirth of Israel as a nation. The centrality of Israel and the Jewish people to the past and present and future of redemption history. Of God's continuing love and concern for them. And to expose all the doctrine that would disagree with the Word of God. But, some of which forms the basis for what passes as modern church orthodoxy and theology. So before we review the prayer of Manesha, let me address a question that's bound to come up now. Should believers read the Apocrypha? Those books that Luther removed from the Bible. Should we take those books seriously? Should we take them as Holy Scripture? And in a nutshell, the answers are yes to reading it, yes to taking it seriously, and no, it should not be regarded as Holy Scripture. That was the view, by the way of the Jews and the Christians from the earliest times right on up to Luther. The Apocrypha contains truth. It belongs in our Bibles. But it is of a level of divine inspiration below all the other books of the Bible. A good way to think of it is that its nature lies somewhere between holy writ and just human history. And I urge you to go buy a good English translation of the Apocrypha, of which there are several, and read it. It's easy reading for the most part. And it's as informative as it is fascinating. Well, now that I've sufficiently opened this can of worms, let's examine the prayer of Manesha. Now first let me say <clears throat> that while this prayer is beautiful and it is inspiring, the likelihood 
of it having been uttered by Manisha exactly as we have it is small. However, it can't be ruled out. Although the Apocrypha wasn't written until several centuries after Manisha's day, it is certainly possible that that prayer was handed down word of mouth and its essence retained because Second Chronicles 33.18 says that indeed the words of Manasseh's prayer were recorded in a book called The Annals of the Kings of Israel. Well, here is the prayer as translated in the King James Bible version that is published including the apocryphal writings. And it goes like this. Listen carefully. It's long, but it is wonderful. O Lord, Almighty God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, and of their righteous seed, who has made heaven and earth with all the ornament thereof, who has bound the sea by the word of thy commandment, who has shut up the deep, who has sealed it by the, thy terrible and glorious name, whom all men fear and tremble before thy power, for the majesty of thy glory cannot be borne. And thine angry threatening towards sinners is importable. But thy merciful promise is unmeasurable. It's unsearchable. For thou art the most high Lord of great compassion, of long-suffering, very merciful, and repentest of the evils of men. Thou, O Lord, according to thy great goodness, hast promised repentance and forgiveness to them that have sinned against thee. And of thine infinite mercies hast appointed repentance unto sinners that they may be saved. Thou therefore, O Lord, thou art the God of the just, hast not appointed repentance to the just as to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which have not sinned against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance unto me in that I am a sinner. For I have sinned above the number of the sands of the sea. My transgressions, O Lord, are multiplied. My transgressions are multiplied and I'm not worthy to behold and see the height of heaven for the multitude of mine iniquities. I am bowed down with many iron brands that I cannot lift up mine head, neither have any release. For I have provoked thy wrath. I have done evil before thee. I did not thy will, neither kept I thy commandments. I have set up abominations, have multiplied offenses. Now therefore I bow the knee of my heart, beseeching thee of grace. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned. I acknowledge my iniquities. Wherefore I humbly beseech thee, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me. Be not angry with me forever by reserving evil for me. Neither condemn me to the lower parts of the earth. For thou art the God, even the God of them that repent. And in me thou wilt show all thy goodness. For thou wilt save me that I am unworthy, but according to thy great mercy. Therefore I will praise thee forever all the days of my life. For all the powers of heaven do praise thee, and thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Not a bad prayer, huh? That is one powerful prayer that Meneshib said. It's a a prayer, I think, that proved that he became a changed man. And we know he became a reformed king while he was detained up in Babylon. See, to me, this is a pattern that will hold true when a few years later all of Judah was hauled off to Babylon in chains. After several years in Babylon, thousands of Jews realized their error. They realized this calamity was caused by Jehovah. They repented. They changed. They were readied to come back and to reestablish themselves as a better people, a more godly people in the promised land. It's little wonder that Luther allowed this one remnant of the apocryphal writings to remain in his authorized Bible. This prayer so well captures the essence of the condition of all humans. Absolute guilt without exception. Luther's primary gripe against the Catholic Church was that the Bible says that grace and grace alone through Christ is the path to atonement and to forgiveness. But the church had made it the province of the human church government to grant forgiveness or to withhold it. Thus for them salvation came not from God but from the institutional church. And by the way, generally speaking, that is how Catholicism sees it to this day. This prayer also expresses that our only hope for eternal survival is for God to forgive us in His mercy and His grace. So powerfully does this illustrate the love of God for humanity and the divine source of redemption that He has prepared for us that Manesha's prayer is regularly chanted by the congregations of the various Eastern Orthodox churches and is to this day part of the common, uh, the Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church of America. Well, that's the end of my little detour. So let's return to the book of 2 Kings 22. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to read it all. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 429. 429. Yoshiao was eight years old, Josiah, when he began his reign, and he ruled for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Edidah, the daughter of Adiah from Botskat. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, living entirely in the manner of David his ancestor and turning away neither to the right nor to the left. <clears throat> in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan the son of Atzlaiyau, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of Adonai after instructing him, go up to Hilkiah, 
the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and have him total the money that has been brought into the house of Adonai, while the, uh, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Then have them give it to the supervisors of the work being done in the house of Adonai. They are in turn to use it to pay the laborers in the house of Adonai to repair damaged places in the building. The carpenters, construction workers, stonemasons, and to purchase timber and worked stone for doing the repairs of the building. However, they don't require an accounting from the supervisors given the money to spend because they dealt honestly. Hilkiel, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the scroll of the Torah in the house of Adonai. Hilkiel gave the scroll to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went back to the king and gave the king this report. Your servants have poured out the money found in the house and handed it over to the people supervising the work in the house of Adonai. Shaphan, the secretary, also told the king, Hilkiel, the high priest, gave me a scroll. Then Shaphan read it aloud before the king. After the king heard what was written in the scroll of the Torah, he tore his clothes. Then the king issued this order to Hilkiah, the Kohen, Achiam, the son of Shaphan, Akbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant. Go, consult Adonai for me, for the people for all Judah in regard to what is written in this scroll which has been found. For Adonai must be furious at us. Since our ancestors didn't listen to the words written in this scroll, didn't do everything written here that concerns us. So Hilkiah the priest, Achiam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophet, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harchas, keeper of the wardrobe, she lived in the second quarter of Jerusalem and I spoke with her and she told them, Adonai the God of Israel says to tell the man who sent you to me that Adonai says this, I am going to bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. Every word in the scroll the king of Judah has read because they have abandoned me. They have offered to other gods in order to provoke me with everything they do. Therefore my anger will burn against this place and it will not be quenched. But you are to tell the king of Judah who sent you to consult Adonai that Adonai the God of Israel also says this in regard to the words you have heard because your heart was tender and because you humbled yourself before Adonai when you heard what I said against this place and its inhabitants that they would become an object of astonishment and cursing and have torn your clothes and cried before me. I have also heard you, says Adonai. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors. You will go to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the calamity I'm going to bring on this place. So they brought word back to the king. Just as with chapter 21, there's... A lot more information, or at least another perspective, about Josiah and his turn on the throne in Second Chronicles. So we're going to be reading chapters 34 and 35 of Second Chronicles at the appropriate time. Now Judaism regards Yoshiao, Josiah, as Judah's last great king. 
And part of the reason for this is that the advent and actions of this particular king were actually prophesied by name. Back in 1 Kings 13, 1, 1 Kings 13, 1, we hear this. Just then, as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, a man of God came out of Judah, directed to Bethel by a word from Adonai. And by the word from Adonai, he cried out against the altar. Altar, altar, here's what Adonai says. A son will be born to the house of David. His name will be Yoshiao, Josiah. And on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. They will burn human bones on you. This event and the accompanying prophecy happened three centuries before the time of King Josiah, Yoshiao, and 2 Kings 22. It happened as King Jeroboam stood in front of the ten tribes of the breakaway northern kingdom just a few years after Solomon's death, and and the king prepared to burn incense to an idol. Well, finally that prophecy was about to be fulfilled precisely as ordained. Those ten tribes that hailed Jeroboam for his idolatrous behavior had been driven out of their land a bit more than 90 years earlier, scattered around the Assyrian Empire, with only small remnants of them remaining in the area surrounding Samaria. Now let me take a moment to set the stage because the historical context is vital if we're going to understand what's happening. The geopolitical situation was quite different for the incoming king, Josiah, than it was for his grandfather, Manasseh. All during Manasseh's time, Assyria was in absolute control. And we have that reaffirmed for us back in chapter 21 when Ashurbanipal made a show of his power by arresting a number of kings in the west who were behaving a little bit too independently to suit him. And among those kings was Manasseh, king of Judah. But by now, Egypt and Babylon's influence in the reason was on the rise. The golden age of Assyria had passed. Then, they had extended their empire too far. Assyria couldn't defend their borders. They were too big. Judah suddenly found itself in a time of relative peace without the fear of any major power trying to lord over them. In fact, Assyria lost control over the territory of the former northern kingdom of Israel, now called Samaria. So we're going to see King Josiah try to take his reforms beyond Judah and up to the north to the former territory of the ten tribes. And if one tries to date that moment when Assyria finally lost its grip on the entire Holy Lands, it would probably be about 630 B.C. So, it is into this set of conditions that 2 Kings 22 opens by telling us that Josiah became king 
at a mere eight years old. This was not a co-regency with his father, like it had been for his grandfather when he had become king at only 12 years old. That is, he didn't share the throne with his father to learn the ropes until he got a little bit older. Rather, Josiah's father, Ammon, who had occupied the throne for only two years, was suddenly murdered by his own royal court. Who they intended on putting on the throne, it isn't clear. But when then the murderers were killed, and Ammon's son Josiah, only eight years old, was given the throne. Why not an older son? We have no record of any other son of Ammon. So it seems whatever group was in control was stuck with an eight-year-old. Or was it that maybe, maybe they were aware of that 300-year-old prophecy that specifically named Josiah as a king of righteousness that would cleanse the land of its apostasy and idolatry. And so they followed through with the process believing that they were God's tools for bringing about his will. Obviously it was the men called the Am Eretz, the people of the land, who executed those conspirators who had assassinated the completely legitimate, although horribly wicked, King Ammon, who was a true descendant of King David. And these Am Arets were the true power behind Josiah's throne, at least at first. After all, no eight-year-old has any ability to comprehend politics, let alone make decisions that affect a nation. Now let me remind you that the Am Arets was more of a movement than a political party. These were people who, in their own way, were trying to restore a Torah-based law and purity to Judah. They cut across all levels of society, from the poorest farmers to the government administrators to the priesthood. So to some level, at least, little Josiah was being given instruction in God's Torah and being led in a generally righteous and honorable way. Thus, verse 2 declares that Josiah did what was right from Jehovah's perspective. We're told that he ruled for 31 years and then died. Actually, we're going to find out later he was killed in battle. This means he hadn't quite reached his 40th birthday when he died. This seems a little bit odd since he was such a righteous king, and yet his lifespan was cut short. Now we're going to address that issue, another related one in due time, and it's caused a lot of scholarly debate. Well, verse 3 jumps over many years, and it plants us in the 18th year of Josiah. This does not mean he was 18 years old. Rather, it means he had been king for 18 years, so he was 26 years old now. And the first recorded act of Yoshiao was to order the temple to be repaired. Now, one can only imagine its deteriorated condition after the reigns of so many bad kings who used the temple and its treasures as their personal bank account 
and as a place to entertain guests and to erect idols. It had been a long time since a serious attempt to, to, to make repairs and rest, restoration to the temple had, uh, had occurred. It was during the reign of Joash, some 200 years earlier. In fact, the conditions were so similar, it's no wonder that Josiah generally followed the same plan and pattern as did Joash to accomplish his goal. Joash was seven years old. Josiah, eight years old when they became kings. Thus they had mentors and handlers who guided their every movement, their every decision. Fortunately, in both cases, godly men and women provided their care and their guidance and the result was generally positive. Well, chapter 22 of 2 Kings is written as though everything we read about happened in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And that whatever happened in between his first and 18th years was unimportant. But common sense tells us this can't be the case. There had to be a lot of groundwork laid and, and earlier reforms made before such an enormous undertaking as refurbishing the temple could happen. And indeed, Second Chronicles gives us some answers to what happened in those earlier years. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 34. Second Chronicles chapter 34. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1218. 1218. Second Chronicles chapter 34. We're just going to read the first eight verses. Yoshiao, Josiah, was eight years old when he began his reign and he ruled for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, living entirely in the manner of David his ancestor and turning away neither to the right nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he was still young, he began seeking after the God of David his father. In the twelfth year, he began cleansing Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, the sacred poles, the carved and cast metal images. In his presence, they broke down the altars of the Baals. And he chopped down the pillars for sun worship mounted above them. He smashed the sacred poles and the carved and cast metal images, grinding them to dust, which he threw on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, thus cleansing Judah and Jerusalem. He did likewise in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Shimon, even as far as Naphtali, and in their surrounding ruins. He broke down the altars, he beat the sacred poles and carved images to powder, he chopped down the pillars for sun worship throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of his reign, after he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Atzlau, Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Yoach, the son of Yochaz, the recorder, to repair the house of Adonai, his God. So, here we have 
a brief reign, a brief record of what led up to his decision to rebuild the temple. And this was the order to commence then was given in King Josiah's 18th year. The writer-editor of Second Kings condenses this sudden explosion of righteous reform and activity into one grand event, Josiah's 18th year. But the writer-editor of Second Chronicles depicts an evolving process with mile markers at Josiah's 8th year and 12th year that culminates with the highlight of extensively repairing the temple in his 18th year. So, Second Chronicles tells us that when he was 16 years old, he seems to have gained an independent interest in pursuing the ways of the Lord. Within four years after that, he began a program to rid Jerusalem of all the Bamot, the Asherah, and the metal and wood idol images that his father had put up. Now it's important to understand this. The Bamot, the high places, that are referred to here are not pagan altars. They're private altars to Jehovah God of Israel. And while on the one hand, having a private altar to burn incense or perhaps to sacrifice to Jehovah doesn't seem so bad, God had designated that only the Levite priests can do these functions, not private citizens, and only at the Jerusalem temple, not anywhere the people choose. But even the best of the kings of Judah allowed the Bemot to remain in operation, no doubt, due to the political pressures of it. Some traditions die hard. Some traditions die hard. I'd like for you to recall that prior to Mount Sinai and the Law of Moses, when the Israelites were still in Egypt, they had adopted the typical custom of that era of each family appointing a family member to act sort of like a priest. They weren't called priests. And then each family would have their own little altar upon which they'd burn incense and some would sacrifice animals at their homes. Usually the specified family member was the firstborn son in that household. But when Israel fled Egypt at Mount Sinai, the law became that the tribe of the Levites alone would from here forward perform these ritual functions of incense burning and animal sacrifice to God and further it was to occur only at the tabernacle that was erected at the center of the wilderness encampment. Well this never settled very well with any of the other tribes. And many of the folks ignored this commandment. They continued in their old ways of making uh, uh, burning incense and animal sacrifice as a private family ritual. Thus, from the first time Israel crossed over the Jordan under Joshua until the time we're studying in King Joash, Bamot, high places, private family altars to Jehovah continued in operation. And it was apparently such a hot button, such a sensitive issue, that politically 
The kings of Judah felt it just wasn't a fight they could win. And so they looked the other way. The people demanded it. So for the king, it just wasn't worth worth the battle. But here we find that Josiah felt otherwise. And he ordered those bamot taken down. Now this would have been very unpopular. It would have come at a great political cost to him. But Josiah was young enough, zealous enough for God that he was willing to take the plunge and let the chips fall where they may. Then in 2 Chronicles 33.5 we get the direct fulfillment of the prophecy of 1 Kings 13 as Josiah had the priests killed who worshipped and tended to the various false gods and then had their dead bodies thrown onto their pagan altars and burned up to ashes. This purge by fire was thus a cleansing, a purification of everything that had been defiled. But then in verse 6 we see that even though he was king of Judah, he ventured far to the north. And he did the same in the former territories of Manasseh and Ephraim and Naphtali and Shimon, Simeon. Now by the way, this Simeon was not the formal tribal territory of Simeon that was now part of Judah. It was a city, maybe a small district up north. Now Josiah's mission to the north had to have occurred after Assyria pulled up stakes and left, having lost any ability to control the area of Samaria. Thus it left the the territory open to whomever decided they wanted a lord over it. So King Josiah appears to have felt he had the right since at one time this was Israelite territory. But it also shows us something else which is confirmed in other biblical and extra-biblical accounts. A significant portion of the remnant of the ten tribes who somehow managed to stay in the land after Assyria began its large-scale deportation of the Israelites to other nations of the Assyrian Empire, that was a hundred years earlier, they intermixed through marriage with the people of foreign nations that Assyria had brought in to replace all those exiled Hebrews. Now naturally, along with these foreigners came what? Their gods. Their idols. It is well known that it was official Assyrian policy to allow all the conquered nations as well as those even just under their influence to continue worshiping their own gods in their own ways without any interference. Further, since the supposed Hebrew religion of the ten tribes was based on the golden calf cult that had been instituted by Jeroboam, it wasn't very hard for these northern Israelite tribal members to accept the idols of other gods. So by now there was this strange, perverted, unholy mix of religion going on in and around Samaria and the former Israelite tribal territories and so King Josiah decided he was going to do something about it. 
We also find out in 2 Chronicles 34.7 that up north, sun worship had taken hold. No doubt imported with foreigners. Sun and moon worship had been standard religions of the Middle East for thousands of years. So the big picture is that every imaginable kind of religious perversion, every variety of idol worship was now entrenched in the land that God had set apart for His people. None of it, none of it had been forced upon the people by foreigners. Either their own Hebrew kings insisted upon it, or the people themselves sought after it. We're going to continue next week with the rebuilding of the temple and we're going to discuss the discovery of that lost scroll that had such an enormous effect on Josiah and on his kingdom.